0: Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. And it came from a theory that ultimately actually has been proven now in a couple academic studies. One in particular came from Northwestern University a couple of years ago, that the way women connect and women succeed and the way that we network is extremely different from the way men do. And when women try to emulate the exact same way that, that men build their networks and connect in and move up in a, a position, whether that's in corporate or whether it's building their own business, what have you, that women don't succeed as much. And it's because we, we're just different types of people and, and we connect in different ways. And so, with Letters Speak, I wanted to create an environment where women could come together without judgment, without preconceived notions of who another woman was. Listen to her story, not just what her title is or what she does for a living and everything you can glean from her business card, but truly get to know the woman and the why behind her passion that she has.
1: Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and my co host, Fletcher Senior Strategist Mary Beth West is taking some well-deserved time off. So we'll see her back in a few weeks. We've had so much happening at the agency of late, and we're excited to announce that we won four Addies. We only submitted four, and we won for our clients, Shannondale Senior Living for video production, Humane Society Tennessee Valley for branding, insect deflect for branding and a commercial that we shot for them and talk about a cool product we've been working with this company insect deflect out of washington dc for almost a year and we helped them develop a product that is about to hit the market that is a surface spray and you spray it on to your picnic table or wherever you're going to grill and it keeps bugs away from your food so go check that out at insectdeflect.com and you'll also able to see our addy award-winning commercial we're also working with a new client on a top secret project that's going to be announced in early april and it's going to be huge it's going to have a huge impact on the state of tennessee and beyond and we'll be doing an entire episode of that in the near future as soon as that public announcement is made there's more big news at fletcher this year We moved out of our beloved office space on Market Square in downtown Knoxville at the end of the year. And we moved into co-working space in Bearden. We're now in the Western Plaza, Fresh Market Shopping Center in a space called eSpaces, which shameless plug, eSpaces is also a client. So we've pivoted to a hybrid model as so many agencies and companies are doing. We have this co-working space. We have standalone office space in there, but we can use the common areas. And so we're doing a hybrid work from home, go into the co-working space. We also have a co-working space in Buckhead, Atlanta, and now in Sandestin, Florida, since that's where I'm spending a lot of my time in the Northwest Florida market, building out our tourism and hospitality vertical. We know that tourism drives the Tennessee and Florida economies and we have a lot of experience in that sector. So I decided to come down here and work from the beach for a while and and see what business I can scare up. So spread the word. Super excited about today's episode, Behind the Data, turning market research into actionable strategy. Research in particular market research is really central to what we do as marketers and communicators in strategic communications and public relations And without the insights that we glean from market research and other types of research, we just can't be effective. So it really is foundational to informing the strategies that we put together and driving results and actually giving us data to benchmark against. Market research is a continually evolving sector that has helped brands, organizations, individual researchers, and, and even the academic sector stay above the curve. And in a global economy that took a significant hit in 2020, research functions only grew. If anything, focusing on conducting smarter, efficient, and more impactful research has been on the rise. So research tools and methodologies have grown way beyond the long, boring surveys that nobody likes to engage with, expensive focus groups, which we've all been in the room and sat behind the glass mirror for hours trying to glean insight and things are changing there's some things that are still the same but there's so much new development in the world of research and today we have a research expert here to dispel some of the myths about what's going on out there and tell us what's on the horizon for research in 2021 and beyond and I without further ado would like to introduce today's guest Catherine Porth. She's also a friend of mine. We met because we share a passion for inspiring female entrepreneurs and we kind of bonded over that and I became a fan girl of Catherine. She has worked as Director of Business Development and now as Senior Independent Project Manager for Serviture, which is a leading research company known for integrating data analytics, psychology, and visual design to build a behavior science platform that gathers quantitative and qualitative feedback to deliver better experiences when it comes to surveys so you know we all see we get that survey in email or some and we're just like oh or social media i don't have time for this it's not my thing but serviture has really made taking surveys and participating in research really fun catherine has also served as diversity coordinator and a business mentor for the Knoxville Entrepreneurial Center, of which I've also been involved over the years, love KEC. She is a graduate of the Darla Moore School of Business with a bachelor's in science and marketing and management. And she received her MBA from the esteemed Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee. She is also founder, and this is what I just love even more about her. She's founder of the nonprofit, Let Her Speak. And we'll be delving into her work there as well. She's one of the smartest women I know. She lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Fletcher Marketing PR is headquartered. And Catherine, welcome to Misinterpreted.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much,
1: Kelly. It's so nice to be here. Well, we just think the world of you. And we had a conversation recently about collaborating on a research project. We're looking at, at different topics that we want to explore in the world of marketing to women. And we have some ideas for some for some new information that we want to find out that we can share with the world. So we're working together on that right now in the early phases. So Catherine, let's just start out with a real basic question for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the ins and outs of research. We have a wide variety of listeners to the Misinterpreted podcast, some very senior level, some agency people, and then some entry-level and mid-level career marketing and PR professionals. So can you just, in a nutshell, explain the difference between qualitative and quantitative research?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So quantitative data is pretty much data that you can count. So I always think quantitative quantity, you can count a quantity, And qualitative are the insights that you get through usually conversation. They're things that you can't tie a metric to, you can't tie a number to, but there's usually a much more quality and context to qualitative
1: data. Which do you find that you use more in your work? I use
0: a hybrid I'm a huge I'm a huge proponent of a hybrid model for data because you need quantitative in order to report and to make it a lot easier for people to understand what the insights are and to track engage but you need context so the context you get from the qualitative data and one without
1: the other really only gives you half the picture. There are obviously so many different survey tools that we'll discuss today and Surveys are still widely used, and we deploy surveys quite often in our business to measure sentiment, find out what consumers may or may not be doing, why they may or may not be converting, and the list goes on. We're working with a client now where we need to measure how our communication strategy is going to impact their stakeholder audiences. And so before we can start the project, we have to survey to see where we are, so we can measure at the end and see how much progress we made, and hopefully, you know, set some goals for where we want to be. It's so difficult, though, Catherine. I don't know about you, but even when we do just a simple survey, even a Survey Monkey, a small one in our agency, to just get some high level data, it's really hard to get people to respond. And I've noticed that many brands are will give you an incentive, like take the survey and you'll get a chance to win a gift card or, you know, we'll send you a small gift. So what's your take on that? And I know at Serviture you talk about how you combine data analytics, psychology, and visual design to build the best possible survey experiences. And then how does that translate into actually getting people to participate and engage? So one of the biggest
0: differences and one of the biggest gaps that I see when people are putting out surveys is that they don't think of them as a marketing campaign or a marketing tool and really it is. uh, I mean, somebody interacting with a survey from a company, you're interacting with that company's brand in, in a way and you're getting an idea of who are these people and do they care, really care about me as a consumer. So when you're first setting up a survey and deploying it, and you're trying to get people to actually respond to it, you have to care about it as much as you would care about a marketing campaign. That means you need to start off first with, okay, what is our goal with this? What is the, the message that we're trying to send out? What is the action we're trying to have people take from this campaign that we're running? Who is it that we're trying to reach? How do we reach them? Where are they? What type of messaging and branding would they connect with the most? And then the other piece of it, though, is also the time that you anticipate people will actually focus on taking a survey. I think a lot of times surveys get a bad reputation is because we forget that it's humans that are taking this. It's not computers putting in ones and zeros. It's a person who's sitting down, taking time out of their day in order to give you information give you the company information and so i think a lot of times we kind of forget about that that this is an experience with your brand that you're building for a consumer but you're instead of asking them to give you money for your product or your service you're asking them to give you their time And so when you're developing the survey, not only does it need to be very short, uh, it shouldn't be any more than really two minutes. If you have a highly engaged audience and and people that really interact with you and you have a very strong connection with your clients or your customers, you could get up to five minutes. Anything past that though, you really have to first warm people up to it. And that would be more of like a follow-up survey of 30 seconds to two minutes, here's the initial insights that we mean. Great, would you mind if we ask you a few other questions, which I've seen some companies starting to do. And then there's the question of, do you offer an incentive for people? Now at Serviture, we are actually huge proponents of very, very rarely ever using an incentive most of our surveys we have high completion rates they're usually 80 to 85 percent completion rates we have really good engagement most people will will take the survey and take it all the way through and we don't ever offer incentives for any with any of the clients that we work with we usually tell them don't offer an incentive and the main reason for that is because When you think about someone who is taking a survey for an incentive, they're really just taking it to get to the end so that they can get that $5 gift card or whatever it is that that you're offering to them. It's not coming necessarily from a place of, I really want these people to hear what I have to say, and I really want to give them feedback because I trust that they're going to take my data and the information that I'm giving them and do something with it. So you ultimately end up with what we call junk data. You you get a bunch of people that are taking it purely for the incentive. That's it. They get to the end. They rush through it. They might not even really pay attention to the answers that they're giving. They're just trying to race through it as much as possible to, to get the gift card or the, the giveaway entry. Instead, when you build up that campaign for the survey and you build into that campaign, your messaging of this is why we're asking these questions. This is how we're using this information. It's going to inform this next product that we're doing, or we're building up an exciting new campaign or exciting new promotion, but we would love to have your feedback first and then build into your campaign a follow-up to the people who actually engaged with you to say, your information didn't fall on deaf ears. It didn't go into this black hole where nobody ever saw it or ever listened to it. No, you were seen, you were heard, and we value your opinion. And this is what we did with the data. So I strongly argue that if you build that into your campaign, people will become much more fans of your brand, much more fans of your product. And they feel like you truly care about what they have to say and you're listening and then because of what they said you're actually reacting to that and you're developing something because of that feedback that speaks much higher and much more loudly than giving out a gift card
1: i love what you have to say about making it part of a brand experience and really intentional about how the branding and the messaging is in the same brand voice and doesn't seem like something that is totally separate or even executed by a third party independent of the brand. And it also makes me think of ratings and reviews. So we're working with a client right now that really needs to improve their ratings and reviews and increase the number. And so in the messaging, we're working on, let's tell them why this is important and explain to them why we really want them to review us because we need that information and that's a survey of sort i mean they have a it's open-ended they have a chance to to write a comment but i think people will make up what you don't tell them so let's explain the why behind it but i do have a follow up question catherine about incentives and focus groups because even though focus groups aren't being used as widely right now because of COVID 19 restrictions they probably will come back. I think there's always gonna be a place for them. Do you see that as an entirely different situation as, as far as being incentive-based? Because I know with focus groups, when we've put focus groups together before and worked with a third-party research company, I mean, some of the incentives they you get for coming to a focus group are pretty big, you know, a hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars sometimes.
0: Yeah, I do believe that that's a, it's a very different conversation and I don't feel that not offering incentives in a focus group garners the exact same results as, as a survey. Usually by nature surveys, you don't always have the ability to pre-qualify. Some surveys, there are built in pre-qualifications that people have to go through before they can get to the real survey but it's very different because you're you're trying to more so hear a voice of the masses so you're you're usually trying to get you know a couple hundred or thousands of responses from people so you you need a way to to qualify survey responses in that these people really wanted to tell me what's going on so in that way an incentive doesn't work as well because you have that junk data issue. But focus groups is much different because you're working with um, a third party or, or yourself, you're qualifying the people that you're asking to come into this focus group anyways. And these people are giving hours, not you know two minutes of their time in order to give that that feedback. So in that respect, it's it's not the same. You're you're getting quality information and as a sign of respect for people giving an hour or several hours of their insights and their thoughts and talking through or working with your product and you can watch how they're interacting with your product, that's more of a sign of respect for their time because it's it's such a, a larger amount of time that they're spending versus like two minutes to fill out a
1: quick survey. Right, that makes total sense. Well, I've I've also noticed that capturing transactional data at the point of experience has become a big thing you know smart short surveys i think of in large airports for example hartsfield jackson atlanta when you come out of the restroom there is a little machine that says how was your experience and you either push a smiley face or a frowny face and I thought that was kind of cool, except with COVID-19. Now, I don't go anywhere near touching those, but how do you think about the way brands are utilizing data capture at the point of experience? Is this effective? Are people more likely to respond when you already have their attention? I have several thoughts
0: on this (laughs) uh, type of data collection because I've definitely, I see them all the time too, Well, back when I could actually travel (laughs) widely. So going a little bit back to what I was talking about, I am a huge fan of a hybrid model of qualitative data and quantitative data. If you only capture one, you're missing half the picture. And I strongly believe that it's the exact same case in these instances. So having these buttons in, in the bathrooms The same thing happens when you purchase something and immediately pops up a net promoter score question of, you know, how likely are you to recommend our brand or this product to a friend or family member? And usually, you know, it's a scale of zero to 10. Uh, It's the exact same type of thing. It's just the taking of a pulse, and that's all. However, for data to be truly Driving the strategy behind business. It cannot be a pulse. It has to be a deeper understanding of the context and the thoughts and emotions behind why a person answered the way that they did. And another issue with it, too, is that. A lot of times in the bathroom, it, because it's a fun button, you could have a bunch of little kids that go running in there and start pounding on the buttons because it's really fun. And, you know, the mom's trying to change the diaper while the other kid's playing with the buttons. And, and all of a sudden, you have all of these frowny faces coming in and you're like, what in the world is going on down there? <laughs> and you send someone down, and it's like, there's nothing here. Like, what? Why in the world were people so angry all of a sudden? and you have absolutely no context of what's going on. All you have is this data output of at this hour, on this day, there was a bunch of frowny faces and we don't know why. Uh You can't drive strategy or or change how you're reacting to things when you don't know the why or the context to things. It's the same with a net promoter score. A lot of times you could get a net promoter score that's very negative on a given day. And maybe it's because not necessarily the product was faulty or the service was faulty, But maybe there was an issue with the website and people were unhappy with the website, but they didn't have any other way of telling you except for this pop up, which was
1: unrelated to the other experience that they were having. Well, and it could be delayed shipping in, uh, you know, in today's world, or it could even be sometimes I think those pop up and you're like, wait a minute, I don't know. I haven't had really had a chance to wear this or use it yet. And you're already asking me this question. Exactly. It's fine. It is
0: a piece of data. It's certainly not a piece of data, though, to drive strategy and and execution and, and to make a lot of changes, too. It's just purely a pulse.
1: Right. Well, that brings me to a question about contactless surveys. So obviously, contactless surveys have been really popular of late, and they collect answers to a set of questions from a target audience without anyone needing to touch any shared device or paper. So it's usually on your mobile device. And so we've seen so many of these types of contactless surveys pop up during the pandemic. And even I've noticed it because because I have flown during COVID and I've noticed even getting surveys from Delta, you know, after my flight about what how my flight experience was like right after like on the app. And then also using it as more of a pre-assessment tool too, to pre-assess. I even had a plumbing company. It's like before they came out, I had to fill out this whole, I guess, a form of a contactless survey to pre-qualify me that the plumber could come to my house and no one was sick here. So how do you see contactless surveys evolving and do you think that's the wave of the future?
0: Well, i feel like it's been around for a long time what i what i'm hoping is that yes the the days of the paper surveys will go away <laughs> i think that paper surveys are fine but there's a lot of things that you're not really capturing by doing paper surveys it's also very tedious time consuming It's fairly expensive because you need people to actually read, or unless you have a machine and you can scan in those, but you still are are dealing with the cost of paper plus stamps if you're mailing it, things like that. So with serviture, we only use contactless digital surveys. That's what we've always used. That's the only form. And most of the time it's done through um, direct email out to people. Every so often there'll be clients that want to share it on social media, but that's really the world that we've always operated in is that it's all virtual. For one thing, one of the greatest reasons for using it and why I feel, I hope that more people understand and start taking advantage of this is that when you're utilizing a contactless digital survey tool, utilizing a tool that can actually show you data in real time. And that's part of the reason why I like to utilize the Serviture platform is because it's all real-time data. So what a lot of times we're doing is when we help launch a campaign I'm doing behind the scenes analytics as data is rolling in. And so I can, for one thing, track if you have recently launched it through social media, I can track like how much of an uptick did we see from that social media post that went out but I'm also doing in-campaign analytics. And so what that means is as we're collecting this data and I'm starting to measure and map out these different micro segments that we're building based off of demographic information, psychographic information, a lot of times I can see if there's gaps in the data that we're collecting. And that's a, a very common question that I get when I'm helping a client set up a campaign is how many responses is enough responses? And the answer is, is it depends. And what it depends on is the in-campaign analytics. So say for example, you collect 300 responses, which technically in academia is is usually the amount that you need to have for a paper to be publishable. So that's kind of a rule of thumb is 300. However, during the in-campaign analytics, if we're at 300 and I'm looking at this data as it's rolling in and realizing, There is a very clear group of people that are extremely dissatisfied with this company for some reason, but we don't have enough responses for that that specific group to really make a educated report that this is how they're feeling because there's just not enough in that population to really say this is in fact an issue. We need to bump it up so that 300 isn't actually the target anymore. We need to get more for this specific group of people. Doing a paper survey, you can't ever do that. You you only find out this information after the survey's run, after people have completed it and sent it back to you and you've started doing the analysis. By being able to do it in campaign, in real time, you're able to move and adjust the plans that you had for the survey campaign immediately to ensure that the data that you have is good data, it's valid data, it's clean data, and it's data that you can actually put some sort of strategy behind.
1: What about the good old fashioned phone survey? I still get an occasional call asking me to answer a few questions.
0: Uh, I'm not a huge fan of phone surveys. I think it, it depends on who your your market is. I would say you know, for the most part, most of the phone numbers that you get, if they're landlines, a, a huge portion of the people in the United States don't have landlines anymore. You're usually talking about an older demographic or you're talking about businesses that that have landlines. Uh, If it's cell phones, I mean, most of the time, a lot of people are just not going to answer their phones if they don't recognize a phone number. It's not something that you're asking somebody in that moment immediately to answer you. And a lot of times, you know, people are in the middle of things. They're busy. They it's more that you're forcing them to adhere to your time than for them to find the right time like you can with a survey to take it. And the other part of it, too, is that from a demographic standpoint, I would say I would argue that younger Gen X um, down to Gen Z, you're probably not gonna reach them through a phone survey unless you do a warm up first. Oh yeah, not at all. (laughs) I I would say you could do a warm up doing a, a digital survey that they fill out and then ask them like, would you mind if we contacted you to talk a little bit more about your experience and then schedule a time with them to actually talk about it and send out a reminder and say, hey you know, Mary's going to be calling you. This is Mary, she's she's the one that's going to talk to you. Cause I, I know personally, I had a poor experience with trying to get a COVID test last year from a facility. And they sent me a survey afterwards and I filled that in and kind of told them about my poor experience. And then they kept trying to call me out of the blue to talk about it. And every time they called me, I was in the middle of a meeting or I was eating or something was going right. on. Eventually, they did email me, but by that time, it had been four months since that experience. And by that time, I kind of forgot the details. I remembered a little bit about why it was poor, but it wasn't enough that I could say very well and clearly this was everything of why this was a poor experience because it (laughs) it had just waited way too long. It's like, I don't remember anymore.
1: (laughs) That just was... Indicative of the of the whole experience, right? That it was four yeah. months later when they finally tried to find out what happened. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I was like, clearly, you don't. I mean, you care, but you're just a little behind. Um, you don't so care about timing, much. exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so, when it comes to market research, what do you think your industry is doing really well, and where could there be room for improvement?
0: I think as far as what we're doing well is, you know, trying to find, especially because uh, as we've pointed out during our conversation, there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote, old school ways of doing market research and utilizing surveys or telephone or certain types of focus groups and things that are are just not as prevalent anymore, partially because with every generation, things change as far as how people are willing to give their information and I think market research is is doing a, a good job of trying to stay innovative and trying to connect with people in different ways and meeting them where they are. There's a lot of younger people like Gen Z. I was just reading some things about that. They're much more willing to even more so the millennials were to have companies track them and see what they're doing through their apps and utilizing their cell phones. And there's like eye tracking software that people can give explicit permission to a company to track how their eyes are, are going down their phone screen and things like that. And they're much more okay with that because they know ultimately it leads to a much more targeted experience that they feel like they are seen and that their tastes and the things that they like are being addressed by that company and the company is connecting with them. So while it does sound kind of scary, and and especially if you didn't grow up around technology, I definitely understand that older generations would would be much more apprehensive to do that. I think market research is trying to develop new ways to listen to people without taking a lot of their time away from them. Where I feel like though, there's still a lot of room for improvement is the, the fact that you don't always hear businesses talk so much about how they're listening to customers by like showing them that these are ways that, that we have heard from you, that we need to make improvements and these are the improvements we're doing and we're holding ourselves accountable and then following through with all these things. I think a lot of times you hear like, we heard you, we're making this change, and then you you don't hear anything about it and things kind of go back to normal. And that can also come into play with these campaigns that there's not, there still continues to be this notion of people need to give up their time and give up their information in order for us to make decisions. And it's still this kind of take, 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 without building out this understanding that no longer can businesses get away with just being a entity that doesn't have a personality or doesn't have a humanness to it i mean people need to feel like there are humans that are trying to talk to me and trying to interact with me and i'm not just a scientific study i'm another human being that has thoughts and emotions and and you know i have ups and downs throughout my day and if i can find a company that understands that that empathizes with what i'm doing what i'm going through and is trying to figure out where they can bring solutions to help alleviate these issues that i have that's going to become more so the expectation for consumers to have on a company especially as time goes on
1: well that makes me think of live chat and live chat is a tool that i've used in the past and i've noticed that it's getting more and more automated to the degree that i don't even want to click on live chat because i know if i'm not going to get a real answer that it's just ai and if if it gets too complicated it's they're just gonna go away and so i think the whole live chat functionality like you said taking the human touch out of it and not treating this customer who's trying to interact with your company as a human being and putting a bot out there trying to you know read your mind it's just that's just not part of the consumer experience i think most of us really want to encounter
0: i completely agree i had a experience like that i remember not that long ago amazon's customer service was great because i i always felt like i could get a hold of a person and talk to them about the issues that i had and granted a lot of the things that you need taken care of are automated and self-service through amazon which i think a lot of people like that they don't they can figure it out themselves and it's really simple but i had an issue that could not be taken care of. I had to talk to somebody about it and their chat service kept passing me around to a different person. It felt like every five minutes to the point where I had to continuously reiterate everything that I just said almost every five minutes. And I wouldn't have kept up with it if it wasn't for the fact that there was like a a pretty sizable refund that I was owed, but it wasn't getting taken care of correctly. And that really kind of made me stop wanting to ever shop with amazon again i really don't shop with them again because it's like okay you got rid of the humans i understand that business is business and you need to worry about your bottom line and operating expenses can be high the more people that you add but this is a horrible experience and i don't want to have to have this issue again i'd rather go shop with someone where i know i can actually talk to a person
1: yeah and even when you try to find a phone number to call it's like they bury it they don't want you to call they don't want to talk to you so whenever i encounter a brand that actually answers the phone i'm blown away it's just like oh a real person really i know it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) i have this brand of clothing that i love um it's called jude conley And I've called them several times and they always answer the phone and they're so helpful. And I feel so attached to that brand because they deliver that interpersonal communication that's so important that we just don't get anymore.
0: Yeah, it's so simple, it seems like, too. Like it just have a human being
1: answer (laughs) a phone, exactly, (laughs) or call you back, you know, just call me back so one last question about research so in my experience smaller companies often shy away from research and and not just smaller companies I mean even I've seen even some you know companies that are doing a couple hundred billion dollars of business a year but they don't really invest in research and they think it's too expensive and they don't really understand why it's foundational to marketing and ultimately foundational to business success what would you say to a business about the risks of making decisions without the kind of insight that research provides
0: i would say one of the first questions i would pose to them is how much of your conversations that you're having with people on your team revolve around i don't know if that's true or you guys are all having different opinions because you come from different areas within the business where the sales people are saying one thing, the marketing people are saying another, the product team is saying another thing and the customer service is seeing something completely different. When you have data, those arguments go away because the data speaks for itself. It shuts down those arguments because it's no longer an opinion, it becomes a fact when you're looking at the actual data. So that's part of my argument is that the amount of time that's wasted and uh, with thinking that you're guessing or, or arguing about what the thing should be and then it keeps getting delayed and delayed, that all can get taken away when you're collecting data. The argument around that it's too costly, it's really not as expensive as you think it's not like you have to work with some of the big four, like hiring, you know, Deloitte or Ernst & Young and their consultants to come in and, and do all of this research for you. And it's like, you know, a six figure invoice. There's a ton of companies out there and businesses out there that are smaller, that can help you get things set up, train you on how to use it. And then you can start having a continuous feed of data coming in. And that's where I ultimately would love to see more and more smaller, medium, and, and even some of the big scale businesses that might not be doing this right now, where you have a, a continuous flow of information coming in, where you're connecting with customers maybe once, twice a year, checking in, finding out what's going on, and you have this stream coming to you where every decision that you make can become data enabled and you can test something and get feedback immediately and determine, okay, we need to pivot this way or we need to pivot this way or we got this right and we can keep going. Without doing that, most of the time, you're wasting a lot of time, resources, and just mental strain and stress on
1: on guessing all the time. Right, you can't argue with data. Or I, oh, actually, I've seen some people try, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or yeah. tell me it's not. This couldn't possibly be real. <laughs> but anyway, so thank you for all of your insight and sharing your knowledge with us on this topic today. It's been really helpful. And I want to pivot the conversation now to a fascinating nonprofit you founded and that I've become a fangirl of called Letter Speak. Today is International Women's Day. So I thought what a perfect time to talk about how Catherine and I bonded over our passion for entrepreneurship and a shared commitment for helping other female entrepreneurs succeed. I love that. I'm so passionate about it. And you've actually taken it a lot further than I have by founding Letterspeak. Can you share with our listeners what Letterspeak is, what the mission is and why you founded it?
0: Yeah, so the mission of Letterspeak Speak at its core is to elevate women's voices, to build a stronger support system for women, and to help women who aspire to lead be able to be the leaders that they wanna become. And really, it started because of my natural curiosity, being a research person. I saw a gap, and I saw that there was a lack of, quality ways that women could truly connect with each other in a authentic and vulnerable place and it came from a theory that ultimately actually has been proven now in a a couple academic studies one in particular came from northwestern university a couple years ago that the way women connect and women succeed and the way that we network is extremely different from the way men do. And when women try to emulate the exact same way that that men build their networks and connect in and, and move up in a, a position, whether that's in corporate or whether it's building their own business, what have you, that women don't succeed as much. And it's because we we're just different types of people and and we connect in different ways. And so with letters speak, I wanted to create an environment where women could come together without judgment, without preconceived notions of who another woman was, listen to her story, not just what her title is or what she does for a living and everything you can glean from her business card, but truly get to know the woman and the why behind her passion that she has and then have an opportunity to sit down with other women that are in the same space as you and talk about what that story meant to you and answer questions that the speaker challenged you with. And it's a way to start gaining a deeper appreciation of the shared experiences that all women have, but also the different experiences that we each have that changes and shifts and pushes our perspective from where we are to start empathizing and understanding why women you know, have done different things differently um, and to start eradicating the judgment and the, the cattiness that sometimes can
1: happen within groups of women. Oh, I've always said, I think I've been saying this for about 25 years, is that the reason that we haven't achieved the level of political power that we should have in this country or even in boardrooms or being elevated to c-suite positions is because women are more likely unfortunately to not support each other and men will lie still and cheat for each other we have got to come together and this is why i love what you're doing so much is we've got to come together and really support each other and build each other up and form these networks to help and mentor each other and grow each other otherwise we're not going to make the progress that we need to make and make the inroads i mean we're getting there but it's taken us a lot longer than it should have in my opinion
0: i completely agree i i get the question every so often too when we bring these women together of well you know don't don't you guys start getting into fights? And don't people start yelling at each other? Or how is everybody accepting this when, and and how are women, are women actually opening up and talking about, you know, some of the darker aspects of their life? And the answer is when you build a environment and an experience around a shared understanding that we are not here to judge, we are not here to, say one is better than the other in fact at our events there is no stage there is no sound system every woman is on the same equal footing literally and figuratively and we are here to seek to understand each other and to challenge each other and to seek out ways that we can start supporting each other and because i build that uh, expectation into everything that we do with Let Her Speak. I have never had an issue with anything. Everybody is accepting with open arms, no matter who you are, or where you came from, positions and titles don't really matter. We just want to help each other achieve whatever they w- the other woman wants to achieve.
1: Right. Well, listeners, the website is letherspeakus.com. And I noticed on your website, Catherine, that you mentioned that female focused research is part of your offering with Letterspeak. And as you know, our core competency at Fletcher is our expertise in marketing to women. So tell us about this state of mind for women in business study that is, is referenced on your website.
0: Yeah, yeah, so when I started Letterspeak, I, because I'm I'm a research person, <laughs> I started collecting qualitative data predominantly by sitting down and interviewing women one-on-one. So from the beginning, Let Her Speak has always been a data enabled organization. Everything that I do, every decision that we make is based in data that we've collected, whether it's through interviews and conversations or whether it's through surveys that we send out that are related usually to the events that we've historically hosted. However, I started realizing that there was a bigger picture to what Let Her Speak can do to be of value to the community at large. And one of those areas, besides building out our community offerings and the programs and the opportunities that we give for women to share their stories, the research was also a huge part of it because most of our research before then we had been keeping internal and it was essentially like a secret sauce for us. So last year I decided to launch the state of mind for women in business study. And part of it was because when I was out trying to find secondary data to help complement some of the primary data I'd, I'd collected myself, I was finding that most of the information that's out there about women and, and particularly women in business was very much just facts and figures around how many women are in C-suite roles, you know, how many are in entry-level, what industries are they in, how much money have they raised? You know, it's. It was very much just, just numbers-based. There was no context and no emotion behind how are women feeling and what is the behaviors that they are showing and, and what are the barriers that they're facing. So this study was the first step in becoming one of the hubs of research that we can help communities understand the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of what women are truly feeling in the community and identify gaps and areas that Let Her Speak can address, but then also share with community leaders additional gaps that maybe the Let Her Speak programming can't cover, but other organizations in the community can. So that that information helps to inform a lot of other areas besides the areas that letter speak operates in and the state of mind study specifically focuses on how women define success what are the barriers that hold us back how supported do we feel by either our employers or by the community if you're like an entrepreneur for example and what are the goals that we set out for ourselves one of the most interesting pieces of information that I pulled from that, that I now I've always felt, but I actually had data to prove this now, is that the number one barrier that holds a woman back is her own negative self-perception. It's not a lack of network. It's not a lack of time, although time is definitely something that we talk about a lot. We just don't have the time to do it all. But it's at the core, it's that We have these feelings of imposterism and and we struggle with confidence and and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I truly believe that when you start having a strong core of women that support you, that negative self-perception starts eradicating because you start working on yourself a little bit more and realizing that you can achieve a lot more than you think.
1: I could not agree more. I think the negative self-perception and the imposter syndrome is really it's so real. And I know in my life, so many times I've spoken to groups of entrepreneurial women or just groups in general, and what people think of me and tell me they, how they perceive me is entirely different than the way I perceive myself. And that has been an ongoing struggle for women in general, I, and I, not just in business, but in life. And so I think it's so important for us to address that and find ways to overcome it because otherwise we can't achieve and be as impactful as we could be because we can't get out of our own heads. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can take
0: all the leadership skill classes you want to, but if you at your core feel like you are not a leader and you're an imposter, you're not going to get to that place
1: that you truly belong as a leader. Well, I would love to help push this study out. And I know it was, you know, East Tennessee women that you surveyed, but I imagine that anecdotally, it probably applies regardless of geography. So would love to push that out on our social if, if, if you're agreeable to that. And yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the women in business cohorts that you're starting up. Have those started yet? And you know, how can we get involved?
0: They haven't. We're in the process of designing and developing them right now. And that third piece of what Let Her Speak does, besides the community and the research, is going to be education. And that, for the most part, was informed by the research that I conducted and that I've been collecting, that I truly saw there was a gap in the types of programs that were out there to help women, but also help allies that want to to help women, both men, women, allies. So what I've been putting together and I'm designing with a lot of other women who are experts in these fields is a dual cohort program. And the first part of the cohort are going to be aspiring women leaders who are wanting to do more and wanting to be heard and wanting to take on a role in their community but there's certain things that are holding them back. And so we're going to help women establish a strong foundation of confidence, communication skills, and financial literacy, which are three of the biggest things that you need to have to be an effective leader, to be a strong leader. And there are also three things that aren't necessarily taught in school. And and you have to really seek out to find out how to work on these things. So we'll have women who are experts in each of those contribute to the, the actual materials that we will be taking these women through in that cohort. And then the second cohort is designed for existing leaders. So people in the community who have some sort of ability to impact change, whether that's in their business, in the community at large, in a nonprofit, in a government agency, and they don't know exactly though what that impact needs to be or or how to approach it and do it well i know a lot of people are afraid that they're going to misstep and and that could lead to a backlash so that cohort is going to take people through understanding their own unconscious bias empathetic leadership skills and active listening communication skills With the hope being that when we have both of these mechanisms moving, not just one separate from the other, that can lead to a much greater change in the overall landscape of women being seen in the community as leaders, women seeing themselves as leaders, and existing leaders stepping up and being able to help bring in more opportunities for women to rise into those positions.
1: Wow, I wish you would have had this in place when I started my business 14 years ago. (laughs) I could have really benefited from it instead of the way I learned, which was just initiation by fire. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right, right. You just kind of get
1: thrown into the deep end. (laughs) Yeah, I say I have a street MBA. I kind of learned it on the streets. But (laughs) Catherine, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. You always inspire me. Not only because you're so smart, but for the way you are marrying your business acumen with your passion. I've heard you and I've read, you talk a lot about legacy. So I I just want to ask you one final question, which is, what is the legacy Catherine Forth wants to leave?
0: Oh, so you're turning my words back on me. Yeah, don't you hate it when that happens? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would say... My main legacy that I I hope people remember me by but also remind themselves is that every person deserves to have a voice and to be seen as a human and to be loved and cherished for who they are and where they came from regardless if they had a traumatic past or they're struggling with their own identity, they struggle with the, the socioeconomic, the racial background that they come from, that people start loving and appreciating and accepting a human for being a human and that we don't forget that there's a lot that goes on below the surface that you don't always see when you're first interacting with someone.
1: Well, I have no doubt that that's the legacy that you will leave because you've already laid um, an amazing groundwork to get there. And thank you so much for being on Misinterpreted today. I'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. And listeners, you can follow Catherine Porth on LinkedIn. She's on LinkedIn at Catherine Porth MBA. And be sure to follow Let Her Speak at Let Her Speak on Instagram and Let Her Speak on LinkedIn. And please follow Fletcher Marketing PR at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher. As always, I welcome your feedback, wanna hear from you. And special thanks as always to Chris Hill, our sound engineer at HumblePod. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified.
0: You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com
1: and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.